It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment because science was on my side. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Aaron Barker. And this week we're presenting stories about luck. Our first story today is from Corey Evans. It was recorded in October 2019 at the Oberon Theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The theme that night was unscripted. So, the year is 1999. No Scrubs and I Went It That Way are top of the Billboard charts. And I'm eight years old, sitting on the sofa with my brothers, and we're watching this uh, VHS tape that we got from a New Jersey flea market. Um, and this VHS tape was very special because it came with a box of fishing lures. And the uh, VHS tape was actually uh, an infomercial for the uh, helicopter lure uh, fishing set. So if any of you guys in the crowd are f- have been fishing in the 90s or early 2000s, you might be familiar with the uh, notorious helicopter lures. These are terrible lures. But... Everyone bought them because the infomercials that came with them were being hawked by uh, this guy. He's basically the Billy Mays of bass fishing. He's Roland Martin. And if you've ever seen a Roland Martin fishing show, this guy just stands on a boat with like his buddy, like his doctor, like some dude he met at KFC, and they'll just be chatting it up. And and you know, within three minutes, it's like boom, fish. Oh, cool, trophy fish. Throw it back. Um, and so I'm eight years old, and you know, my dad used to bring me and my brothers all. The, and I'm from North Philadelphia, so. My, my dad used to bring us out in the outdoors all the time, and uh, we never really got to fish, so I'm watching this infomercial, and I'm just hypnotized. I was like, man, this guy, Roland Martin, makes fishing look so easy. I need to do that. Uh, so I was like, and I remember looking at my tone, I was like, we need to go fishing. And my tone was like, no. Um, so I watched the infomercial like four or five more times before my twin actually stashed the VHS. Uh, it took, I found it like two years later in the basement. Um, so yeah, I, I watched this VHS a bunch of times and I was like, all right, I need to learn how to fish. And my dad, although he was really big into the outdoors, didn't really know how to fish. Uh, my mom certainly didn't. So uh, I did the next logical thing, which is I ran to the public library <laughs> where I stayed there for a month reading books about how to fish. And the weirdest thing is I didn't have a fishing rod or, or line. So imagine like reading a book about how to tie knots without like a fishing line, like tie knots. Uh, so my dad sees this and, uh, he, he, I guess he takes pity on me. Uh, so he, he hits a uh, Kmart at the time and buys a couple fishing rods. Uh, and from that day on, I, I started fishing and I found a local, you know, stream near my house, a couple blocks down the street. Um, and I was fishing there all the time. I didn't really care what I was catching. I just wanted to be out there fishing. Side note, I never caught anything on those helicopter lures. Nobody did. Um, but, uh, so 10 years passed and along the way I had been fishing very frequently. I, I got, <clears throat> I got pretty good at it. I was like raiding garage sales and yard sales, getting people's old fishing equipment and making like Franken rods. And it was just, it was a blast. So I decided to, you know, take my talents to South Florida, 
um, and pursue a <laughs> pursue a degree in marine biology. I, I didn't win any championships. Um, but so yeah, I went I went down there and I was I was super amped. I wanted to get down there and I wanted to be a fish biologist. Uh, so I touched down on campus, touched down, and I find out I actually can't take any fish biology classes for like two years. So now the year is 2011, and now I can take my first fish biology class. And I had been you know super anxious about this the entire time because the first you know two years of college for me were actually pretty bad. I was you know, floundering in classes, and I thought floundering, no pun intended. <laughs> Uh, I was floundering in classes and I thought that this uh, fish biology course might turn things around for me. Um, I, I was wrong again. Uh, so I'm taking this class and like the first, you know, one fifth of the course, uh, I'm, my grades are sucking again. Um, and one of the reasons why is because this class uh, was focused on all saltwater fishes. And in North Philadelphia, I was only exposed to freshwater fish. And for those of you who might not be familiar with fish, it seems like a, a kind of minor distinction, freshwater versus saltwater. But when I tell you that there are 30,000 species of fish, and they basically play by their own set of rules, like this isn't birds or mammals, where if you've seen one bird, you've seen like all of them. Um, <laughs> You can catch a fish in a pond and then 500 feet, you could walk to the, you know, the shoreline of an ocean. And these fishes are doing very different things, playing their own different game. And it's madness. So uh, it was weird because for me, I was actually the only black person in my class. And everyone else were, you know, white South Floridians who had grown up around these animals. So to them, this was, you know, like second nature. Uh, so I was, I was struggling. Fortunately, we had our first lab coming up. And uh, this class was really cool because it was a very hands-on class. So this first lab was actually a fishing trip. I was like, yes, something I know how to do. I had never fished in the ocean, but I assumed if you throw a line in the water, maybe something will bite it. Um, that's what I was banking on. So uh, we actually, we end up fishing in the back of this research uh, facility. It's a boat launch. Um, and the professor, he picks a student. We'll call the student Jesse. He uh, gives the student the assignment of handing out fishing rods to all the people in class. So Jesse's handing out rods. I'm anxious. I'm waiting. I'm like, let's get it. Uh, Jesse comes up to me, and before he hands me the rod, he says, hey, Corey, sorry we don't have any cane poles for you. You'll have to make do with this regular fishing rod. So we're going to pause there. Uh, so some of you might not be aware of some of the stereotypes that are associated with how people of color interact with the outdoors. The cane pole stereotype suggests that black people are too poor or otherwise tactless to use a regular fishing rod, which might be kind of complex with the reel. So instead, they go to the woods, find a stick, tie a piece of line to it. So. This was racist, um, mad racist. And it's crazy because, you know, like I'm from the inner city, so I'm aware of, you know, institutional racism. I'm, I'm aware of redlining in the housing districts and being followed in convenience stores. But I wasn't, this is was my first time ever being confronted with like this kind of like down south racism. So it was weird. And it's funny because, you know, you, you grow up reading books about the civil rights movement. And you're thinking, man, if anyone's ever racist to me, this is what I do. I, I didn't do any of that. I was like, I was like, damn. I was like, is this a racism? Did, this is like, it's 2011. Like, is this a racism? Uh, like a wild racism disappeared. Um, so I took the rod. I was like, whatever, man. I took the rod. And I knew, like, I knew as long as he didn't know how good, of, he didn't know how good a fisherman I was. I knew as long as I had a, as long as I had a rod in my hand, I kind of had a chance. So I start casting. And I think by my second cast, within a couple of seconds of my line hitting the water, boom caught a lane snapper. And every time I, and maybe every other cast I was bringing in fish and it was crazy and it was a blast. I was like, whoa, this ocean stuff is pretty easy. Um, and I'm looking down the, I'm looking down the boat launch at Jesse and he's not having as good a time and maybe the racism is slowing him down. I'm not really sure. Uh, but 
class is winding down now. Uh, we're about to pack up, so I actually take my last cast. And if any, of you, if any of you guys are fishermen out there, you know the last cast is sacred. You almost never catch anything on it, but you need to do it. So I took my last cast, and I remember casting towards this wooden pylon further than I had cast before, off to the left. I let the line sink for about five seconds. I get this huge bite. And I've been, I've been catching all kinds of fish earlier uh, that day, but this bite felt very, very different. So I'm fighting this fish, and you know, class is packing up, and I'm still fighting this fish. Uh, and as this fish is approaching the dock, I see this really dark silhouette. I was like, this doesn't look like anything I've caught earlier today. So we bring it in. And it turns out nobody really knew what it was. The professor had to actually go get a book, <laughs> key it out. It turns out it was a black sea bass. We'll return to that. He looks at me, and he says, Corey, where did you learn how to fish? So I looked at him. And then I looked at Jesse, and I said, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So, so what was really crazy about this fish is that it wasn't necessarily supposed to be there. Uh, black sea bass, they rain, they rain in the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic, and it's very, very rare for them to get that far south. So uh, for this area in South Florida, this was actually a range extension. So we actually preserved that fish and cataloged it in the school collection. And if you visit Nova, Nova Southeastern today, you still see the fish and has my little name on it. I even wrote the little bait I caught it with, squid. So I was, I was, <laughs> I was, so I was pretty amped about this. And to this day, sometimes I think back about, because, you know, I'm from the Mid-Atlantic as well. So I, I, I think it's just kind of funny that, you know, God saw fit to have, you know, a black sea bass and a young black man <laughs> meet uh, from, from, very, from very similar parts of the country, meet in some random boat launch in South Florida. That was Corey Evans. Corey is an evolutionary biologist broadly interested in the development, evolution, and ecology of phenotypic diversity. His research integrates developmental biology, biomechanics, phylogenetic comparative methods, and ecology to understand how phenotypes develop, evolve, and interact with their respective environments across multiple timescales and how intrinsic and extrinsic mechanisms influence patterns of phenotypic diversity. Before we continue with our next story today, I just want to remind everyone about our live online shows, which are occurring nearly every week these days, including... Tonight's Science Story Slam, where myself and StoryCollider founder Ben Lilly will be providing feedback and encouragement to our slammers. You can find out more about that at storycollider.org. Our next story today is from Carla Katz, who was recorded in November 2019 at Caveat in New York City. The theme that night was Outliers. So I grew up in a family of Italian Catholics and English Jews, which means I'm from New Jersey. (laughs) And I grew up believing that I'm lucky. I'm like really good at those scratch off lottery tickets. And I have awesome parking karma, which in Hoboken where I live is a big fucking deal. But I wasn't feeling very lucky five years ago when my doctors told me that my kidneys had failed due to a genetic disease called PKD. And getting on the kidney transplant list is a multi-month event with just tons of tests, EKGs and MRIs and MRAs and my personal favorite, the colonoscopy. It was all a pain in the ass. And... uh, (laughs) 
I know, stupid joke. I was, and I wasn't worried. My doctors weren't really worried either. It's just a, a process. Uh, but when it was all done, I went up to the hospital and the transplant coordinator handed me a manila envelope with a DVD with my tests. And she said, everything is great except for one thing. Uh, we found a large basal tip brain aneurysm and essentially a ticking time bomb in my head that if it burst, I would die. And then she said, but good news is that once you get that fixed, you can have the kidney transplant. And I realized she had a very sad misunderstanding of the concept of good news. Uh, because now, not only were my kidneys trying to kill me, but my brain was trying to kill me too. Um, and I walked back to my car, just sort of in this terrified stupor, and I sat in the car holding the envelope and holding my breath and trying not to move my head. I was trying not to move at all and just staring at the rain coming down on my windshield thinking this cannot be happening to me. And I grew up believing I was lucky because my mother told me so. My mom, whose name is Angelina Josefina Scarlata Arlotta, is Italian, and she's very, very superstitious. So in addition to teaching me how to make a mean lasagna, she taught me the finer things in life, like if you see a crow, it's a visit from the dead. Never follow an empty hearse or you'll be in death's wake. I never figured out how I was supposed to figure out whether it was full or empty. Honestly, Italians can be scary people. My childhood was like a dress rehearsal for the omen. But my mom uh, is just magical to me. And when I was eight years old, we were sitting on the back porch with my Aunt Dolly drinking lemonade. And my mom heard somebody say, Angie, come help me. And so she ran next door to our, our row house to see if the people on either side were okay, and everybody was fine. And she came back up and she heard it again. Angie, come help me. So she decided to go check on Lena. And Lena was an elderly lady that lived a couple blocks up from us that my mother would look in on from time to time. And when she got there, she found Lena at the bottom of her basement stairs where she'd fallen. And when she got to her, Lena touched her on the arm and said, did you hear me? I called for you. I said, Angie, come help me. And it was stories like Lena's that helped me grow up believing that the impossible was possible. They, they sort of sourced my own resilience. I mean, how fantastic is it that a stranger could sort of magically hear your need and come save you. And now I had a bomb in my head and I needed someone to come save me. But I was not looking for spirits or magic or crows. I wanted hard, cold science. I wanted first, second, tenth opinions. And I went on this sort of frantic tri-state search to try and find a neurosurgeon that would do the procedure. And uh, I felt like I was a contestant in like the world's worst game show. Like, you know, get a doctor before your brain explodes. And when I finally walked into uh, the office of Dr. Howard Reiner here at NYU Langone, I knew I found the right 
right person. Uh, first of all, he's this sort of big, caring bear of a man and just exudes confidence. But I really love that he told these dumb dad neuroscience jokes, like what is a sleeping brain's favorite rock band? R.E.M. <laughs> and uh, he also had a sign in his office that said, it's only brain surgery, said no one ever. Uh, and two weeks later, I was in this tiny green depressing uh, room the night before my surgery, separated by a thin blue curtain from a lady that spent the entire night screaming into her phone. And I'm thinking, this could be my very last night on earth, and this is some disappointing bullshit. <laughs> and when my family and friends left, uh, I was feeling scared and alone, and I did that thing they do in the movies, the slow-mo highlight reel of your life, and I, I thought about my kids' births and their milestones, but mostly I thought about the things I'd miss, like walking them down the aisle or my hypothetical future grandchildren. And I'm more spiritual than religious, but that night I prayed like a motherfucker. <laughs> I did not want to be wrong about the whole higher power thing. And while I'm praying, this rabbi just suddenly appeared in my doorway, and his name was also Katz, like mine, and he just said, God told me to tell you that you're going to be just fine. And then he just disappeared. It was, it was like a Jewish mic drop. <laughs> and the next, next morning, as I'm headed into surgery, I just had this one sort of mantra, like a command to myself, wake up, wake up, wake up. And spoiler alert, obviously, I survived. <laughs> And when I woke up with seven titanium coils in my head and a wicked headache, but I also had the realization that I had fixed one body part, but I still had another one trying to murder me. And the wait to get a cadaver kidney on the transplant list on average five years, and I don't have that kind of time, so I need to find a living donor. And my brother, who also has PKD, had had a transplant five years before that, and we had exhausted all potential family donors. So I knew I was down to good friends and dead people. And I had no idea how to find a donor. So I did what everybody would do. I Googled how to ask for a kidney. And when I typed in the words, how to ask someone for, Google came up with for money, if they are gay, or for weed. Those were my top three. <laughs> And I would have been really thrilled to be wondering about any of those things. But the real answer was just to ask. And I'm really good at asking for things. I'm a labor lawyer. I'm a union negotiator. I ask for things professionally. Uh, but this was too big of an ask, and I couldn't do it. Uh, but the word got out through friends, and suddenly angels started to appear and all 14 amazing, insane friends went and got tested to see if they were a match. And I'm wildly humbled, but at the same time, I'm also aware that the chances of a kidney match with a non-family member are sort of astronomically poor. And a few weeks later, I'm in another doctor's office waiting for more bad news when my phone rings. 
And it was my friend Janine, who I met in law school and bonded with over the fact that she liked my hair and I liked her English accent. And uh, I pick up and I just hear this ungodly sound that sounds like a goat. She's just like, <laughs> and it took me a couple seconds to realize with her strong accent, no offense, <laughs> that she was saying I matched. And I was just absolutely stunned. And Janine is one of those extraordinary altruistic humans, even though she eats that weird Brit food like Marmite. And uh, I still worried every day as she was going through the process that she would come to her senses and back out because it's major surgery. People back out all the time. I spent a lot of time looking at my phone, waiting for that call. And then a week before the scheduled surgery, my phone rings, it's Janine, and I brace myself. And when I pick up, she says, is it weird that I'm really excited about this? And I said, yes, yes it is. And the following April, I ran the Rutgers Half Marathon uh, and Janine wanted to jump in for the last half mile so we could ro run together over the finish line. And a cop stopped her and, and she just said to him, no, no, you don't understand. She has my kidney and I need to run with it. And he was just so confused. He just said, just, just go, just, just go. And the two of us, my kidney twin and I, ran across the finish line, uh, four kidneys and two bodies, one in hers and three in mine, uh, bonded by flesh and blood. And I didn't tell my superstitious psychic mother that I had either surgery until I was well past them because she had just turned 80 and she had a stroke and I worried that worrying about me uh, would give her another one. But when I finally did tell her, she claimed she already knew. <laughs> and she said she wasn't worried at all because she knows that I'm lucky. Thank you. That was Carla Katz. Carla is a Jersey-born and bred storyteller, comic, and actor living in Hoboken. Her solo show, Angelina, debuted at the SoloCom 2019 Comedy Festival at the People's Improv Theater. And her earlier solo show, Body Parts, sold out at SoloCom 2017. She is a Ma Story Slam champion and has performed widely in New York and New Jersey. Carla is co-producer with Adam Wade of the Hoboken-based On the Waterfront storytelling series. We're so grateful to Corey and Carla for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker, with help from Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. The stories featured in today's episode were from shows produced by Catherine J. Wu, R.A. Daniel, Paula Croxon, and Zach Stovall. The podcast is edited by our podcast team, including Jun Chen and Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Oberon and Caveat for hosting these shows, and to everybody who needs a little luck right now. Thanks for listening. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts 
so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.